Shabbat Shalom. 84. 84. That's the number that our friend Rachel Poland Goldberg probably put on her pajamas and then her clothing for the day. She wears the number on her clothing and it makes people feel a little bit uncomfortable. But the truth is she doesn't mind making people feel uncomfortable nowadays. She has three rituals that she holds by every morning. She wakes up, she gets herself out of bed and in pajamas or whatever it is that she's got on. In that moment, she walks out to her merpeset, her balcony, and she has a poster board hanging over her merpeset and she changes the number each day so that everyone around knows. Today is day 84. And then she goes into her house and she makes a cup of tea for herself and she takes a piece of scotch tape and a black sharpie and she writes 84 or whatever day it may be and she puts that on her clothing. She knows that it's hard for others to see. She also knows it's important. And then she sits in her home on her beige couch in the corner and she davens every day. And she prays to God that God will release the captives. She says her prayers are powerful. She used bigger gestures than she ever has before. But those are the three things that she does every morning. Some of you may know or have heard of Rachel Poland Goldberg. She actually is a friend of ours. She lives in an area of Jerusalem right off of a street many of us know, Emek Rafaim. And she has busied herself for the last 84 days in a constant swirl of speaking engagements, of showing up, of meeting with people, all for one purpose, to try to find someone who can do something to bring home Hirsch and all of those who are being held in captivity. I talk about this today in many ways because what I've noticed lately is that those that are being held in captivity seem to be disappearing from the headlines, from our news, and also, I fear, from our hearts and our minds. And that can't be. It simply can't be. So Rachel and her husband, John, are pretty spectacular people. They uh, grew up in Chicago. They met when they were in sixth and seventh grade. And then many years passed, Rachel was studying at Pardes, John was doing some startup work in Israel, and they re-met. And it was then that they started dating. Then they ended up marrying, having three children together. Hirsch is their oldest, he's 22 years old, and then they have two daughters that are younger, Orly and Liba. So, Rachel has met with many people throughout the last 84 days. Many of you may have seen she 
was given the opportunity to meet with the Pope. She met with the UN on multiple occasions, both in Geneva and in New York. She met with Elon Musk. She's met with countless people, including President Joe Biden, who's been an incredible source of support and strength for her and all of the families that have family members that are being held in captivity. And the list goes on and on. She's also written many things. She has an Instagram account and a blog post and a big social media presence because she has a group of extraordinary friends that have helped her get through the last 84 days. They rushed her home. after finding out the news about Hirsch being taken. And they've stayed there ever since. It is her squad, it is her control room. And in her control center, they had to make a hard decision at the very beginning of this war. The question of whether they stay low key or whether they go high profile. So many of you have heard Hirsch's story. I will share a little bit and then I wanna share Rachel's words today. Um, Hirsch danced like we did at Simchat Torah. He was with his family, he was at shul, he went home, he had Shabbos dinner with them as they always do together. And then he asked permission that he wanted to go to a music festival, the infamous music festival of Nova. His family said yes, he wanted to go be with friends, he went, and the next morning, sometime around 7, 10, they received two text messages, one that said, I love you guys, and the second that says, I'm sorry. So that was when the horrors began. They didn't really know what those text messages meant, and afterwards they would come to learn through one of their other children who had friends of what had happened in Nova. It was Shabbat and the family is an observant family. So I wanna share with you today Rachel's words. They were words that she spoke um, at the UN. And I share them today with you for two reasons. One, because of my fear that our world is somehow forgetting those who are being held in captivity. And the other, because her words actually speak about this week's Torah portion. Again, she wrote this not today, she wrote this in the past, so you'll have to change the numbers. As of today, there are 129 people that are being held in captivity, and today is day 84. My name is Rachel, and I am the mother of Hirsch Goldberg Polen. He is my eldest child, and he is my only son. Today is the 67th day that Hirsch is being held hostage in Gaza. Hirsch is a dual American Israeli citizen and he is a civilian. Before being kidnapped by gunpoint from the music festival he was attending, his dominant left arm was blown off at the elbow. So he is now also wounded and disabled. In Gaza at this very moment, as we all stand here, there are 138 being held. They range in age from 10 months to 85 years old. They are from nations all around the globe they are Christians, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists. They have not been attended to nor treated by any international aid organization that exists. They are injured, they are starving, they are in pain, they are in fear, they are in torment, and they are dying. 
and we, their families, want to ask you to look at their photos, read their names, and then replace their names with the names of your own daughter, son, father, mother, brother, sister, spouse, grandparent. And we want you to tell us that you would do exactly what you have been doing for these past 67 days to get them out. Look us in the eye, all of us, hostage families, and tell us that. We all remain sleepless, and we are all running to the ends of the earth. We are the best actors in the world. We act like people when really we are other beings, frozen in our acutely agonizing desolation. But this is the second week of Advent on the Christian calendar when the theme is peace, and so I must have hope. In the middle of the holiday of Hanukkah right now, I have to look for light in the darkest of places. And I have to pray that what happened to our predecessors over 2,000 years ago will happen again, a miracle in our day. On Friday night, October 6th, right before Hirsch left to go to that fateful music festival that would change our lives forever, one of the last things I did was I blessed him. See, on Shabbat evenings, Jewish parents for millennia have traditionally blessed their children to be like specific biblical characters. Jewish boys are blessed to be like the sons of Joseph, who were named Ephraim and Manasseh. It's an intriguing choice, given that there are so many more well-known biblical characters. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David, and Solomon. So why do we bless our boys to be like these two not-so-well-known brothers? Up until Ephraim and Manasseh, all biblical brothers suffered from destructive hatred and poisonous rivalry. Cain and Abel, Isaac and Ishmael, Jacob and Esau, and then there was Joseph and his brothers. Those brothers who hated Joseph so intensely that they threw him deep into the ground. But Joseph ends up in Egypt and he goes on to get married and have two children named Ephraim and Manasseh. And those brothers, they loved each other. It sounds so simple. But suddenly, for the first time in history, we have biblical siblings who broke the pattern of hatred between brothers. And every Friday night, Jewish parents all over the world bless their sons to aspire to be like them. The brothers who didn't fight, the brothers who didn't have jealousy, the brothers who didn't manifest violence toward one another. We are at a crossroads, and when I say we, I don't mean we Jews, Muslims, or Christians, Americans, Palestinians, Europeans, Israelis, Ukrainians, Russians. I mean we humans. We can keep dividing the world into the paradigm of them versus us, or we can start thinking about those who are willing and those who are not willing. And there are people everywhere who fall into each category. The whole premise of compromise is being willing to do something I don't want to do, but I am willing to do it, to give up on something I hold so dear for something I hold even more dear. There are people all over the world who are willing, not because they're naive or foolish. It's because they want their children to live in a world that doesn't exist right now. And so they have the courage to be willing to do things that are terrifying and uncomfortable. They are willing to do things that are scary. I also know that on both sides of any conflict, there are those not willing. No matter what the price will be for their lack of willingness, there is anguish so deep, suffering so profound, and rage so ingrained that there are people ready to lean over, take everyone with them, and fall into the abyss. And I don't mean the metaphorical abyss. 
I mean the actual abyss. In the Bible, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 30, there's a curious exchange where God gives the people a choice and says, and I quote, I am putting before you today life and death, and I am telling you, choose life. In our world right now, said Rachel, there is nothing more frightening than choosing life. It's an idea that will require the most brave, creative, heroic efforts and strengths imaginable for those who are willing amidst ongoing trauma, angst, and suspicion to build an idea of a future. In most conflicts, there are two sides, and neither side is going anywhere. So all over the world, we have got to learn to live together. Or, all over the world, we are going to die together. I will conclude, she writes, with a poem that I wrote for a woman in Gaza. She knows who she is. It's called One Tiny Seed. There is a lullaby that says, your mother will cry 1,000 tears before you grow to be a man. I have cried a million tears in the last 67 days. We all have. And I know that way over there, there's another woman who looks just like me because we are all so very similar and she has also been crying. All those tears, our sea of tears, they all taste the same. Can we take them, gather them up, remove the salt, and pour them over our desert of despair and plant one tiny seed? A seed wrapped in fear, trauma, pain, war, and hope, and see what grows. Could it be that this woman, so very like me, that she and I could be sitting together in 50 years laughing without teeth because we have drunk so much sweet tea together and now we are so very old and our faces are creased like worn out brown paper bags. And our sons have their own grandchildren and our sons have long lives. One of them without an arm, but who needs two arms anyway? Is it all a dream, a fantasy, a prophecy? One tiny seed. There's not much that we feel that we can do right now to bring home those who are held in captivity. But I do want you all, whether you are a mother, a child, a grandmother, a grandchild, a spouse, a friend, or simply a human being, I wanna ask you beg you not to forget, not to forget that 84 days ago, our people were taken captive and 129 people are still being held in captivity. There's a simple thing that we can all do. There's a website after Shabbos called One Min A Day like one minute a day, one min a day, because it takes one minute for us to make a phone call, to make sure that those who do have perhaps the power to bring home the captives know that we haven't forgotten them and that they must not forget them either. Please, God, 
May all who are suffering, may all of those being held in captivity, and may their families one day know peace, and may they be returned home in safety and speedily in our days. Amen.